You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, I thank you and praise you for your word, and we thank you that through your word we find life. And we also, even through your word, discover how then we shall live on this side of faith until you return. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word, the Holy Scripture, and for the way you um, show us what you would have us do. And we also thank you, Lord, for the, for the confessions of our church, for the 39 articles, and for the way they bear witness to this reality, that there is a certain way to live in this life, and that we can only do so by your grace. And so we ask now, Lord Jesus, that you would be the one to give us grace as we look into this matter, that you would be the one in our midst as the two or three or many of us are gathered in your name. And so we ask all this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. It is an honor to get to be here at uh, Andrew's invitation to get to do this class on the articles. I actually... I feel like I've been given cleanup because I don't know if you know, but we'll be looking at the last three articles, Article 37, 38, and 39 uh, today. And um, he's given me the title, Loving My Neighbor. And so I know then how I'm to zero in on these last three articles. But it's kind of interesting during this whole wonderful series that we've had on the articles over the last whole school year, um, we've gotten to see, gotten to know, hopefully, what it is that we believe as Anglicans, as those who are in continuity with the, um, the historic Church of England. Um, and these articles are important because a lot of people will say that we're not a confessing church. And if they say that, then they haven't read their prayer book. Um, because there in the back of the prayer book, we recognize that this is the, um, the common faith throughout all of these provinces of the Anglican Communion, that we share this common faith, and that this common faith is based on scripture, and this common faith is a product of the English Reformation. All of these things are important to recognize. Well, in preparing for today, I was, I was happy to see one commentator break down the articles, which was helpful for me just to say, these do, these uh, follow these topics, and these follow these topics. And it was interesting to me to discover and really observe through this other person that these last three articles have to do with something that none of the other articles have really touched on in full. And so we've seen um, the articles almost go in matter of importance to the reformers and to um, the, the, the ones writing them, first Archbishop Cranmer and then um, years later the next set of archbishops. But you'll see that the, the articles from the beginning deal with the most crucial issues that were most important to identify and delineate, the issues of our faith, the very core central issues of faith, um, and what it means to be a reformed Anglican. Well, going on from there, as you get further out from the articles, you see um, that some have to do with teaching on the authority of the church, articles 20 through 24. And then they follow with the seven, uh, seven articles on the sacraments, the two sacraments, in uh, numbers 25 through 31. And then five articles, numbers 32 through 36, on diverse, less important, not less important, but less crucial to the heart of the matter of the Reformation, the, um, different points of church order. And then finally, in these last three, uh, three articles of the whole lot, we have, uh, they deal with civil magistrates in the first one that we'll look at, 37, and with matters that have to do with the social order. 
which is interesting. It corresponds actually um, to uh, the order that Calvin adopted in his institutes. So that's just an interesting fun fact and an interesting point. So again, I would say that all three of these articles have to do with this life, with the question for each one of us as regular old men and women, Christian believers, how then shall we live in the world? Um, and of course, the articles are meant to counter false belief and false approaches to um, different aspects of the Christian faith. And so you'll see um, this, um, this particular article, 37, is about uh, civil magistrates. Again, of the power of the civil magistrate, it extends to all men, clergy as well as laity. It's in all things temporal, but hath no authority in things purely spiritual. Again, the uh, English reformers were concerned to say there's no foreign jurisdiction in England. Again, that read, the pope has no power here. And then the second thing that was important about it was to distinguish from some of the kinds of Reformation uh, churches found on the mainland, that in England, the king, though he has power, does not have power over the church to preach the word or administer the sacraments. He was not allowed to do those things, and there was that separation and that distinction. Um, so those were important things to identify uh, and, and lay out. And in the original version of it, you see that especially. Um, the Bishop of Rome has, has no jurisdiction in this realm of England. The king's majesty is um, given the chief government of all estates in this realm, whether they be ecclesiastical or civil. Um, they're not subject to any foreign jurisdiction. But he's not allowed, the princes are not allowed to minister either of God's word or of the sacraments. Um, so again, the original one, interestingly enough, had a couple of footnotes that haven't been carried over into the American version, namely um, the allowing of the, uh, the English ruler to administer the death penalty as needed, although that was abolished later on in England, I believe. And then also that um, the magistrate, the king, was, uh, would authorize people to wear weapons specifically so that they could be conscripted into the army, because you had to bring your own weapon if you were conscri conscripted. Interesting little fun facts. Moving on. I know, murmur, murmur, lots of interesting things there. <laughs> and I'm passing them right by. Article 38, um, again, having to do with this world um, and the way we interact in this world, the, uh, the reformers were concerned to show that we are not like certain reformed groups that would call themselves reformed, but were given over to extremes that were not necessarily present in scripture, or not necessarily commanded in scripture, in scripture, though they might be present. And so we see this in Article 38 of Christian men's goods, which are not common. Again, um, the Anabaptists took the sharing of possessions that you saw in Acts in the early church, and they assumed that that meant um, that communism would have to be um, the rule of life among Christian communities. And of course, we don't hold to that because when we look at scripture, we see that that was a special outpouring of the spirit for them at a given time. And um, even later, and it, and it didn't work out so well because um, we're still sinful. And we saw Ananias and Sapphira hold on to their own goods. Um, and they were drastically punished for that appearance of piety, um, the lying that they wanted to be seen as being entirely generous. And yet in their heart of hearts, they were not. Um, and so the Lord punished them pretty severely for that, as we see in Acts. Um, but again, this sharing of common goods was something that the Anabaptists um, it, it, it lived out in their communities. 
And so the English reform reformers are keen to say, no, we don't have to share everything in common, but yes, do give alms to the poor. And I'm going to return to that. I'm going to zero back in on giving alms to the poor. And the rest of our class today is actually going to be on giving alms to the poor, that one phrase and what that means for us today as we seek to love our neighbors as ourselves. So moving on, that was Article 38. Article 39 is the final article, again, has to do with this life in that we're looking at what it means to swear an oath. Again, you can see behind this that in other areas there was this question. Among other reformed groups, there was this question, are good, um, good-intentioned men and women allowed to swear an oath in court or to swear an oath in office if Scripture seems to forbid swearing? And so this article is clarifying, no, the vain and rash swearing that's forbidden by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew and then also that's mentioned in James, this warning against swearing is against using profane language for no real purpose other than to let off steam. How very convicting. Um, and it's also this kind of rash vow is also demonstrated in Scripture in Judges 11. It's that rash vow of the judge Jephthah who vowed that he would sacrifice whatever walked out of its ha his house first if he was victorious in battle. And that was the day and age when all of the animals were in the house overnight, all of the sheep and the, um, any kind of goats or oxen or chickens or anything was all in the house along with um, the family and slept there overnight. Because it was so cold, they acted as a natural heating device um, to rise up into the Middle Eastern house. And so Jephthah in Judges said he would sacrifice whatever came out of the house first if he was victorious in battle. And the Lord gave him victory in battle, and then lo and behold, he came home fully expecting a chicken to run out the door. And who ran out the door but his beloved daughter? And so that is this terrible example in Scripture of um, this unrighteousness, that he made the vow in the first place, and then even that he kept the vow when it meant sacrificing the life of his own dear daughter. So that kind of rash vow, that rash swearing, is what this article is talking about not necessarily, not, definitely not about um, swearing to tell the whole truth in court or being sworn into office. According to scripture and according to um, Jeremiah, who's the prophet mentioned in this article, as well as Deuteronomy, Matthew, Romans, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, we see that that kind of swearing in or swearing an oath to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God, that is something we're allowed to do. So again, these articles, do you see how they clarify how then shall we live in this world? And they touch on issues that were very specific to that day and age and yet have some import for us today. Again, we might not be as concerned about this one, um, but still they can show us how then shall we live today. And we're going to go back to Article 38 to look at that uh, in depth. But I want to just take a moment and pause there since I've covered these last three articles and see if anybody has any questions about them. Thank you, David. It's a little bit dry and boring, I know, sorry. But if you go to your, your Book of Common Prayer and go back to the historical documents, you can read them for yourself. You can see, again, the reformers were concerned that we would walk the line um, between the extremes of the Reformation, especially. Um, they're just concerned to clarify what it means to live a godly, Christian, reformed life in England. Well, I guess this yes, idea please. of civil disobedience when yes. your faith conflicts with the yes. laws of government and um, yeah. 
guess you were called to pay the price rather than to go along. Right, and that's something, that's something they hadn't even thought to look at at that time. Um, if you think about it, the Glorious Revolution was after, after these were written in um, 1563 and then uh, reaffirmed in 1571. Well, I, I doubt everyone agreed with the king. What's that? I said not everyone agreed with the king. Right, but it wasn't given, not, not given much leeway during that day and age, certainly. I mean, if you didn't agree with the king, so long as he wasn't disobeying scripture, so far as anyone could tell. And then, even then, if he was disobeying scripture, it was up to the ministers of the church to preach the word, and that by preaching the word, God willing, they trusted that God would change the conscience of the king, which is kind of interesting to think. That's one of those reasons why that article is so concerned to separate out um, that question of um, can, the minister, can, the, can the king or a prince of this land be a part of that aspect of the church? No, it needs to be separate so that his conscience might be pricked by the preaching of the word. I hope that, I know it's a big question. We won't get into it very much today, unfortunately, but we could have long debates about that and discussions about that, right, David? Carry on. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, please, Mary Kay. Our Episcopal Church tends to change things so much. Do they have a dependence? Well, no. And, and they, well, what's amazing is when you look at the 39 articles, go to your prayer book, look in the back, read them, and what you'll see is that there are some changes, but most of the changes were only changed, um, they were only changed to deal with the reality of no longer having a king in our land. So if you look at Article 37, it's altered. This is um, what we have in our prayer book and what was, what was decided upon by the first general convention. I want to say seven, 1792, they looked at the articles. Um, but this was, again, do you see they had to put civil magistrate and civil authority instead of the king, king's majesty. And so they're concerned, most of the additions that happened between the original articles from 1563 and 1571 to our version, the American version, again, really only has to do with that. And why? Sadly, because universally around our Episcopal Church, around the denomination, these articles aren't even looked at. They aren't even treated as being more than historical relics. They would call them historical relics, while we call them um, the, the documents that show um, what is the faith that we confess. They're confessional documents, um, but, but a lot of people will completely disregard them as confessional documents. And so they haven't seen fit to see them as important enough to edit them, unfortunately. How's that for an answer, Mary Kay? <laughs> um, okay. Continuing on, again, these last three articles in the 39 articles look at the question, how then shall we live? Life lived in the world at large and in the social order. And as we return, actually returning to Article 30, uh, 38, excuse me, you'll see that again that clause, as we're saying that as Christians we don't have to live as communists, thank you, Lord, but that, um, but that we do want to give liberally to those who are in need according to our ability. So we're going to zero in on this idea of keeping the law, keeping the law with good works of charity, living, what does it mean to live as a Christian in the world, especially as we think upon the phrase loving our neighbors. And this is a phrase that we're familiar with. It comes, of course, from Scripture, first from the Old Testament and then from the New Testament. 
And when we look at the neighbor, who is our neighbor in Old Testament and New Testament law, we look first and foremost, of course, at the Ten Commandments. And there in Exodus 20, um, two of the laws uh, uh, have to do, laws number 9 and 10, have to do with relationships with our neighbor. And laws before that have to do relationship with relationship with our neighbor. The first half, it could be said, or the first four have to do with vertical relationship with God, um, again, having no other gods before God, not um, taking his name in vain, even keeping the Sabbath. All those have to do with our vertical relationship, our response of thanksgiving for what God has done for us. So it's a, essentially a, a returning back, an attitude of uh, gratitude, essentially returning back to him um, for what he has done for us. It's in response to what he's done for us. Um, so it has that vertical component to it. And then the other half have to do with this horizontal component of our righteousness, of living out God's love for each other. And so we see in 9 and 10 that this involves not bearing false witness. Again, this is not just lying, but not bearing false witness in court in such a way that our neighbor would be um, wrongfully punished for a, for a sin that they didn't commit. Um, or a crime that they didn't commit, and then again, not coveting anything that belongs to a neighbor, a neighbor's house, a neighbor's wife, a neighbor's, a neighbor's servant, uh, a neighbor's animal, anything that belongs to a neighbor. And this begs us to ask the question, well, who is a neighbor? In this Old Testament mindset, when, um, when, this, when God is giving this law to Moses, what did Moses and his contemporaries understand when God said, don't do this to your neighbor? Well, this word neighbor meant a couple of different things. It could mean literally a neighbor, the person who lives next to you. But we see throughout scripture that it means a little bit more than that. What it meant for Moses and his first hearers in that day and age was um, it semantically encompassed anyone who is not literally a brother. Read kinsman, someone not related to you. But it also didn't encompass, at first, someone who was not a foreign enemy. So again, a neighbor involved anyone who was a fellow Israelite. Um, and Proverbs even describes a neighbor in that way that we would understand a neighbor, one who lives next door to us. But Proverbs 3 says, one who dwells trustingly beside you. There is that image of um, this innocence of the neighbor, someone who is right next to us, who um, knows us perhaps better than we would like them to know us, <laughs> um, but who is involved in our lives. Um, so again, Exodus has these laws. The Lord give the, gives these laws to Moses in the Ten Commandments, but then later on in the Pentateuch, we see that these laws are expanded upon. Again, um, these horizontal laws of relationship with our neighbor are expanded upon. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. You shall not um, put a stumbling block before the blind or curse the deaf. You shall do no injustice in court. There's the swearing falsely. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people and stand up against the life of your neighbor. Even more, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. And again, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Again, your fellow Israelites. Why? Um, because the Lord is the Lord, I am the Lord. We see that repeated three times in this short passage. But then the bottom line in, uh, in verse 18 is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And this is the phrase that gets picked up, as we know, in the New Testament. We see Jesus, when Jesus is approached, um, when the Pharisees approach him, a lawyer asks him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus responds, as we say every time we have Holy Communion, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There Jesus has summarized the Ten Commandments, indeed the whole body of the, of the moral commandments within the Pentateuch in these two, um, two aspects. The vertical component, as I've already mentioned, is summarized in loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the horizontal component is summarized in loving our neighbor as ourself. It could be said that we can only do the second when we are actually doing the first. It's only as we love God with our whole heart that suddenly we are miraculously able to love our neighbor as ourself. And do you hear that Jesus there is quoting from the Old Testament? He quotes Deuteronomy in that first part of the first commandment. And then he quotes that passage we just looked at from Leviticus when he says about the second greatest commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, looking at this um, loving our neighbor as ourself is a horizontal ethic that's picked up elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul recognizes that this is the summary of the law in Romans 13. He says, one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, all of them, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. We see it elsewhere in Paul as well, that he sees this horizontal ethic. He picks up this summary of the law that Jesus has um, already given, and he runs, with, he runs with it. He agrees with it. And so also does Jesus' brother James. James calls it the royal law. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. One thing to recognize about this horizontal component and this summary of all of the horizontal components is that Jesus is doing something um, incredible here. By summarizing all of the horizontal components of the law, he's making the law a lot harder to follow, isn't he? If we could look at the Ten Commandments and check a box next to each one of them and say, well, I haven't lied today, haven't committed adultery, haven't committed murder, good, check, check, check. The danger with having a specific list of commandments is that we could go through and somehow manage to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are without without sin or that we haven't committed that particular sin. But when Jesus focuses on the summary of all of these horizontal laws, if I could look at the Ten Commandments or look at those specific laws and check check off the box next to them, well then, when he says, love my neighbor as myself, it's going to be a lot harder. How much do I love myself? Well, if I'm honest with myself and with others and with God, I certainly don't love my neighbor as myself. I might wish I did. I might strive to, even as a good Christian. But do I, in reality, perfectly, all the time? No, of course not. And so we see that Jesus' agenda is to allow the law to do what the law always is meant to do by God, to convict us of our sin. 
as the law, God through the law convicts us of our sin, he then, we find ourselves on our knees, repentant, turning to him, seeking his help, saying, I need help. I'm a sinner in need of grace. I'm a sinner in need of saving. And God, in his mercy, um, again, extends mercy to us through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us. Um, His death is effective for us in the point of our need. And as we're um, there on our knees, once again, every every time we get together, isn't it wonderful in worship how we get to get down on our knees and repent, um, confess our sins, and very often we might have specific things in mind, but every once in a while, um, I won't have time to reflect enough. And there won't be something specific in my mind, and yet what I know is that there is something that I did, or something that I thought, or something that I said that I shouldn't have said. Um, Those things, those thoughts and uh, words escape our, our notice even more so than our deeds. And so we can trust when we come to the Lord, when we look at the generalization of the law, when we say, well, no, I I probably haven't. In fact, I know I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. When we fall on our knees, we're not only asking for God's forgiveness, but we're asking for him to change us. And we're asking for him even to show us our sin in all of its perniciousness, in all of its um, uh, ways of hiding from our eyes. We're asking him to reveal our sin to us. Again, so Jesus is allowing the law to convict us of sin um, so that we will fall on our knees, so that we will receive God's grace once again. And it's grace then that changes our hearts to be um, ones who desire to obey and then by God's grace on the other side of faith are empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey the law. Um, So let's look at this even further. Jesus takes this horizontal ethic and he tells a story about it. In Luke chapter 10, and we only have this, um, this story in this parable in Luke 10, we see that a lawyer again comes up to him and asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, um, Jesus here is the one testing, returns the question with a question, and the lawyer answers about what is in the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, isn't it interesting that the lawyer gives the exact same answer that Jesus had given previously? Well, Jesus says to the lawyer, you have answered correctly, and here's where Jesus gets him. Do this, and you will live. And you see where the lawyer, being a very good lawyer, is now trying to define, define his terms, because he can check the box if we can define the terms a little more narrowly than some others might want to define the terms. So he's looking for a very narrow definition so that he can literally justify himself. Isn't it amazing? Verse 29, um, talk about justification um, by works. He's seeking out justification by works. He's desiring to justify himself. And Jesus is all about showing that not one of us can justify ourselves by our good works. All throughout the Gospels, he's keen to show this. Even in the Sermon on the Mount where he ramps up the law. He um, internalizes the law. Not only are you guilty if you commit adultery or commit murder, but you're guilty of committing them if you even uh, lust after another person in your heart or mind without taking action. If you even, this is the one that gets me a lot, if you're angry against your brother, you're guilty of murder. Um, Jesus is ramping it up by internalizing it and then by generalizing it when he summarizes the law. Why? Again, so that we would be convicted by the law. And so Jesus here is hoping to win this lawyer 
um, to win him for the gospel, to show him his need for grace um, by defining who the neighbor is. And so to define who the neighbor is, of course, Jesus tells the story that we're familiar with of the Good Samaritan. Again, I'm just going to read it just because it's nice to have a little scripture read aloud. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Wow. When we read it again, when we read it as we really is, we see that Jesus is redefining who a neighbor is. From the Old Testament restricted understanding just to fellow Israelites, he's saying now, not only is um, your neighbor your fellow Israelite, but your neighbor is the one who is your enemy. Um, The good Samaritan would have been an outcast, seen as being lesser than a good Jew, lesser than the good Jew who was lying, bleeding on the side of the road. He would have been one who, that good Jew never would have had anything to do with him if it was up to him. And yet that good Jew was in such need um, that he didn't get to choose what kind of rescue he would be um, partaking of. He didn't get to choose who would help him. The Samaritan had been on the butt end of all of the jokes um, of the Israelites. They were rejected, outcasts, seen not only as pagans, but as worse than pagans because they were believed to have syncretized the worship of Yahweh with the worship of other pagan gods. So Samaritans were almost worse in the minds of the Jewish people than those who were Gentiles. So again, a Samaritan is a neighbor. This Samaritan, the good Samaritan, is a good neighbor He fulfills the law, not just to someone who is a good neighbor to him or someone from his own nationality. He's actually a good neighbor to his sworn enemy, the one who would have gladly beat him up in reverse if given the opportunity. Um, Isn't it funny how um, even with our phrase, neighbor, um, the person who lives next to us, that we have those phrases, good fences make good neighbors. We have this sense in which the person who lives next door to us knows a little too much about what goes on in our house. And we know a little bit too much about what goes on in their house to really be able to respect them. Sometimes we'll put on this good show of respect. And I'd like to say we often do. But every once in a while, there's that, that moment when you turn to your husband and you say, did they really do that with their yard? Or why don't they ever wash their car? Or all of the things that might run through your head, the judgment that you have for your so-called good neighbor. Well, um, well, again, our neighbor is not only um, the one who's next to us, the one who's our friend, but the good, our neighbor is often the one who offends us. I would even say sometimes our neighbor is closer to us 
than someone of a different nationality. Um, our neighbor is someone closer to us um, who is an enemy, essentially, than a sworn um, enemy like a Samaritan would to a Jew. Um, a neighbor is the one who hurts our feelings every day. The neighbor is our spouse or our children talking back to us. Um, our neighbor is not only the one that's other and different from us, but our neighbor is the one that's closest to us. So I would even say that um, sometimes our neighbors are our enemies, not because they're distant or people of a different people group or someone that we would be likely to despise, but rather because they're closer to us. Um, Jesus even talks about this loving our enemy um, in Matthew 5, again, in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, isn't it funny that, again, sometimes our neighbors are our enemies, and Jesus is calling us to this higher standard of loving and praying for our enemies. Again, here is the law ramped up, made um, more glorious, made harder to obey. Why? So that we would be convicted of our sin, so that we would fall to our knees in repentance, um, fall to our knees and seek for God's grace. And in that place of falling to our knees, what we find is that Jesus himself is the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who, like the Good Samaritan, has picked us up off the ground, has tended to the wounds of our sin, um, the destruction that we've wreaked upon ourselves and other people, and the way in which other people's sin has uh, damaged us. He is the one who has loved us when we are at our weakest moment, when we are entrenched in sin. Romans bears witness to this reality. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he goes on in a couple verses. Um, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Again, Jesus, in telling the story of the Good Samaritan, shows us the example of how to live. And then he lives it out himself when we're um, totally incapable of living it out. So he's both the way, the example, and he's also the way in that he is the means by which God produces holiness and righteousness in our lives. We are called righteous because of his great love for us. And then we are made righteous by God's grace and the power of his Holy Spirit. Um, so again, um, the Old Testament prophesies to this reality, the transforming reality of God's love through the removal of sin, through Jesus' death and re resurrection. Zechariah looks at this even um, centuries before Jesus' life. The Lord says, um, Behold, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Good Friday in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. There will be true charity, true love, true generosity, true brotherhood among those who have previously hated each other. Again, because God has redeemed us and bought us back from sin and death, even while we still hated him. So this fulfilling of the law, yes, involves giving alms, but one little word about it is that um, these good works, this transformation that God works in us and these good works that he delights to produce, again, are done per, per, first and foremost through the fact that he changes our hearts. He changes our desires. I'm going to zoom forward to, um, 
to this one ethical imperative in Paul. Um, Paul says to the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Paul here is talking about obedience, the ethical imperative, being one who is like the Good Samaritan, loving our neighbor as ourself, loving sacrificially for those even when they hate us. And this ethical imperative is something that we cannot do on our own. And he shows this even as he uses the word, which is not as active. The verb, work out your own salvation, is a middle verb. It's not as active as the other verbs that he uses in verse 13. And even this moderately active phrase that he says, work out your own salvation, again, this is talking about obeying God in this life. It's not talking about eternal salvation. Our eternal salvation is already won for us in Jesus Christ. It's talking about living out our life and our salvation right now. God is the one, even in that, who works in us. He can't even say, work it out, without adding the truth that God is the one who works in us in this life. How does he work in us? He changes our wills. Um, He changes our wills to match his will, that we would say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done in my heart. Thy will be done in my life. Change my heart so that I would desire to work for your good pleasure, so that I would desire to do the works that bring God joy, um, to do the work of ministering to those who are in need. So I'm going to pause right there and go now to this question. We often ask, how then shall we live? Well, um, looking here is, how then shall we give? And scripture has a lot to say about how then shall we give. Um, Again, giving alms to those who are in need is not as simple as it might seem. We're called to give in such a way um, that we're not letting our right hand know what our left hand is doing. And there's this question we often want to say, are we called to give to all that ask? Um, There's this phrase in Luke 6, give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And a lot of people will use that as rationale for giving money always whenever they're asked on the streets. And sometimes what we have to realize is that, um, that that's not necessarily what someone actually needs. Um, giving doesn't always mean giving money. Definitely give. Give to great organizations. Give to the organizations that are helping those who are in need in our city. Give to Bridge Ministries. Give to Brother Brian. Give to Pathways. Give to Firehouse. Know what are the organizations that are doing good work in our city and that are doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. Know which organizations are sharing the gospel, not only in deed, but also in word. Those are the ones where you want to give. Um, And in our mission and outreach ministry, we underscore which ones we really love, the ones that we've noticed are doing this gospel preaching in word as well as in deed. Um, So again, yes, write a check. But then also recognize that writing checks is not the same as righteousness. Um, Again, we might not always give to each person who asks us in the street. We might not give money, but we could always give our time, our eye contact, our attention, a listening ear. Sometimes that's harder than giving money. I often, as a, when I, a single woman for so long, I would just walk along, especially if it was a man asking me for money when I lived in New York City. I'd just keep walking straight along because I was 
kind of afraid. As a woman, I didn't feel safe engaging in conversation with a certain person. Um, and yet, now that I'm married, I have no excuse when I'm with my husband. And he is more righteous than I. And sometimes I'll think, oh, no, here we go. We don't have time for this right now. I'm like um, the, the bad people in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We've got to go. And he will engage he will look people right in the eye. He will love them in the way he talks with them. He'll slow us down. The whole agenda for the evening has been stalled. This is our primary agenda. And I, I want to move on, and yet I recognize in my sinfulness that he's more righteous than I. And in giving time and attention, a listening ear, and eye contact with someone, you might find out that what they actually need isn't money after all. Maybe they really do need a hot dinner, and you can get them a hot dinner. Maybe they really do want the granola bar that you have in your purse, although that is um, less popular, I've discovered. Um, <laughs> um, maybe, you, maybe you do in that moment, after listening to them and making a new friend, you realize maybe they really do need the $5 that you do actually have in your wallet. Um, maybe they don't need the $25 that you have in your wallet, but maybe they do need the $5. Um, C.S. Lewis was apparently once walking with a friend who, um, uh, as they were walking together to an Inklings meeting, Lewis gave some money to someone who had begged him for money on the street. And his friend made the usual ex objection. Won't he just spend it on drink? And C.S. Lewis answered, yes, but if I kept it, so would I. So again, these are moments where prayer and discernment will help you know what to do. Um, again, at giving to those who ask. Give food where possible. Give a way to find help from many of the resources that are available in our city. Um, but again, get involved above all else in relationships. Real friendships with people in need. When you open your eyes in your neighborhood, in your city, you begin to understand the need differently. And this is why I'd encourage all of you, if you're able, to go next Saturday um, with the group that will walk around our city and pray for our city. If you're one of the people that walks around the city the way I did in New York, not making eye contact, not noticing what's going on around you, go do this next Saturday. Open your eyes to see what our city is like. This is the best, safest way for everyone to do this. Um, and you'll see um, more of what is needed. You'll see what God would have you do. Again, um, I'm going to leave it there, but remember, in all of this, our giving is a response to God's giving to us in his son, Jesus Christ. He's given us the biggest and best gift imaginable, and that is first and foremost what we have to offer other people. And then also, we can give sacrificially out of his great love for us. So let's pray, and then please feel free to stick around and ask me questions. Thank you, Father, for giving us your son for your generosity. Thank you for loving us even while we were your enemies, even while we were sinners, um, even while we were unrighteous. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus is our righteousness. We don't have to do anything in order to secure what's already ours in him, and yet that you delight to create in us the desire and then the, um, the ability to do good works in your name. And so we ask, Lord, that you would humble us, give us the grace by the power of your Holy Spirit to be able to love our neighbor as ourself. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.